Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for coming in at 7 o'clock. I know it's probably been a long day for most of you. Hopefully, this is the end. Um, uh, I'll be around for a little bit after. Um, so if I might end up a little bit early, you can feel free to kind of make the most of your time, or I will be here to answer any questions. Um, but I won't be taking on questions on, on the stage. So I just wanted to set that expectation. Um, so my name is Cecilia Dang. Um, and I've been with Adibus Lambda for about five years. Um, I started as an engineer and transi transitioned into management a couple years back. Um, I actually got my start in the games industry. I worked at um, Electronic Arts, working on the online gaming experience, which is what led me to AWS and web servers. Um, I heard that there's bingo going on, so they might be kind of like, you know, <laughs> having more fun than over here, but there's the <laughs> casinos afterwards. Um, yeah, so I've worked on a lot of different problem spaces on Lambda. Um, I've done talks on stream processing in previous years at reInvent. And right now, my team owns the asynchronous invocation and SQS event source side of things uh, with Lambda. Is anybody in the room familiar with those two technologies or use? Cool, awesome, because that's what this talk will be mainly about. Um, Asynchronous processing best practices is also going to include uh, a few different ways that asynchronous traffic um, flows into Lambda. So I'll also be talking about a couple other avenues and best practices in general, um, a little bit of Q theory and just sort of what buffers, buffers are and why do we care about them and how it relates to uh, our distributed systems, which is what all serverless architectures really are. So first, I'll be talking a little bit about what, what it means to be an asynchronous workload and what benefits and why, why you would want to have your workload be asynchronous. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about uh, the different avenues of driving asynchronous traffic to Lambda. So this will include SQS event sources, stream event sources such as uh, Kinesis and DynamoDB, and um, asynchronous invocations. And at the end, I'll be diving specifically into the async invoke path, um, which is where a lot of the integrators, the existing integrators, um, go through to Lambda. So this includes S3 events, um, EventBridge, so CloudWatch events, um, uh, and a lot of the uh, existing services that drive real-time notifications to Lambda go through the asynchronous path. So I'll be talking about the responsibility and ownership on the Lambda side um, and not as much about uh, the generation of these real-time events on the integrator side. And then we'll be diving under the hood um, th what the asynchronous invocation stack kind of look like, looks like on our end, um, how, we, uh, how we address some of the concepts that I'll talk about earlier ourselves, um, yeah, and sort of just how that works. So let's talk about why async. So why would you want to have your workload be asynchronous? So um, one of the main sort of obvious uh, reasons is as a caller, you're gonna have immediate relief from latency. So um, I'm going to have analogies sprinkled out throughout my talk and um, they might not always make a lot of sense, but that was the best I can come up with at the time. So in this example, say I want a cup of tea. Um, but I don't want to have to wait around and make the tea and you know, have the tea be ready uh, because I want to go and do other important work. Uh, my realm of responsibility, I have a bunch of other stuff that I need to do and not wait around for this tea to be made. 
So at the end of the day, somebody is going to be responsible for making this tea. So I'm just saying, well, I can wait and hand off this request to have the tea be made. Um, and because I, I'm saying that I have this allowance to wait and give this responsibility to somebody else, I can also say that whoever is responsible for making this tea or serving this asynchronous request can also be able to um, take on some of the resiliency involved with fulfilling that request. So for example, if um, the teacup broke while pouring the tea, I can have some expectation that the person responsible can take out another cup and pour that cup and fulfill that request. As far as the callee is concerned, or the caller is concerned, um, I made a request to get tea, and at some point it's going to get fulfilled. There might be some retries or error handling uh, in your distributed system, as well as allowances for uh, differences in how long it takes to service that request. Um, so, you know, different teas might take longer or shorter amount of time to brew. So we'll talk a little more about why that is also very important to be able to absorb the differences in traffic um, in, in duration of processing traffic the next couple slides. So when you talk about why async, it's also very important to think about just why buffers in general, um, because a lot of these concepts stem from uh, the awesome studies and like uh, conclusions that we've made with handling just networking in general. So there's been a lot of papers published and learnings that we've learned with just you know having the internet. So a lot there's a lot of parallels with just networking concepts, and I'll kind of be drawing some of those parallels. Um, but why buffers? So buffers really gives you that allowance to wait, and this is when I when I said you know I can have an asynchronous workload. That means that I can wait for things. Um, and uh, the importance of waiting uh, we'll be talking about for the rest of the talk. By not, by not having buffers, it means that you don't have this capacity to wait. And traditionally, what this meant in um, networking is that at some point, you're going to have variances in traffic and extra packets. And if there's no place to put these extra packets and have that, um, have that wait concept, then you're going to have, drop, you're gonna have um, packets be dropped at some point. And what ends up happening is that you have an increasing rate of loss, and um, at the end, when you're receiving these requests, there's always going to be um, some kind of delay, a constant delay, and there's no way to make up for that. So similarly, in um, a distributed system where you have multiple components, and each of these components have their own concept of an ingress and egress rate, so there's um, a certain allowance for how much traffic that one component can take, if you have a bunch of these interconnected, without any sort of without buffers, you're going to have to be very careful with synchronizing traffic between the system. Otherwise, at some point, you're going to have that extra amount of traffic, and you don't have anywhere to put it, so it's just going to be lost. Um, on the other, uh, you know, another dimension you can look at is if you want to have that resiliency and be able to do some error handling or retry, that's going to cause one delay that um, is, not, is going to be propagated throughout the system and you're going to be even less resilient to um, more incoming traffic. So kind of just like you know, a way to sort of visualize it, I have this you know, tightly interconnected series of components um, and imagine that if they had gaps between the different components, and that's kind of the um, sending traffic between services. If you don't have that flow of traffic very tightly controlled, you're just going to have leakages if you don't have this capacity to wait around for work. So that leads me to um, this really great quote, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. 
Um, so, you know, okay, awesome. We need some buffers because I want to be resilient to some things like traffic changes, burst in traffic, or um, be resilient to some error handling. But uh, on the other hand, what this um, gives you is uh, the concept of backlogs. And you're going to have to understand and deal with this um, and deal with the complexity of backlogs, uh, which is a, is a different problem that you didn't have to face before. So that's that quote. So what are some of the trade-offs when you're thinking about asynchronous? Um, we talked a little bit of how you know, the ability to wait. So generally, this ability to wait comes with waiting a little bit longer, because you do have to do that sort of you know, transaction of handing off this request. Um, and especially if you're going to be building in some, resi some resiliency, such as error handling, that might take some time, too, in whoever's responsible for fulfilling that request. So that's just one important thing to think about when, you, when, I, when you're thinking about asynchronous loads is, you know, I have how much my service or my component can handle how much incoming traffic and egress, and if I'm going to add some buffers, what is the extra latency that I want to be, you know, what are the timeouts that I want to be thinking about when I have something that's making an asynchronous request? And the other really important thing to think about with uh, asynchronous requests are backlogs. Um, so if you have the concept of a buffer, you're going to have things ending up in that buffer. And when things end up in the buffer for you know, a certain amount of time, that, that means that it's, it's backlog. Um, and this will happen with any sort of back pressure in your system. So anytime you're saying, hey, I can't take any more requests, and you're saying, OK, but I don't want to throw these requests away. I'm going to have it wait around somewhere. That's a backlog. So the real trade-off here that when you're talking about asynchronous is, do you want a backlog or not? Because the trade-off if you don't have a backlog is it's gone. Um, but on the other hand, when you do have a backlog, you need to know how to handle it. What am I going to do with this backlog? And that's really what um, I'm going to be talking about for the next few slides is, all right, you're, you're going to have backlogs at some point. You know, what are the controls that you can um, use and leverage to deal with it? And how can you think about how to deal with your backlogs? So just to sort of um, back up a little bit, um, I'm going to talk about the different avenues of driving asynchronous traffic to Lambda, because then after that, I will be diving into the different controls that each of those options um, have. So async with AWS Lambda. First of all, you have the Lambda async invoke. So in that case, you just make a request, um, so you know, uh, if you're familiar with the, with the SDK, it's just an invoke and the, the type is event, um, and that's it. It's kind of like fire and for, forget into, in today's world. Um, and any concept of buffers, it's managed for you behind the scenes. So that's managed by uh, my team, and that's what I'll be diving into kind of at the end of this talk. With Amazon SQS event sources, you manage the buffer. You're really bringing to the table your own queue, the, the SQS queue. Um, and you have some controls already, like setting DLQ um, and setting the retry count, uh, uh, re maximum receive count, and stuff like that, um, uh, visibility timeouts. Uh, same with stream event sources to Lambda. You're bringing the, the stream to the table. You're managing the Kinesis stream yourself. Um, and you can kind of think of each shard within that stream as its own FIFO queue. Um, it's a buffer where you have to process events in order. So um, when you grab a request uh, at the head of the stream, you have to process it uh, before any progress can be made on that shard. Um, and what that kind of uh, ends up bringing um, is the concept of a poison pill. Um, which means that you know, if you have trouble processing that first batch of records, you can't actually make any more progress. 
Um, so when we talk about that, it'll, we'll, it'll come up later and we'll talk about how that can be addressed as well. So we talked about backlogs, um, and I want to kind of go over again what, we, what you want in a backlog and what sort of, you know, what you want to keep a backlog. What, what's a good backlog? So um, you want uh, it to be able to absorb traffic spikes. So that's sort of the intention of having these things. You want to be able to um, also absorb the amount of time that it takes to handle errors or retry on throttles and things like that. Um, another really important thing is to make sure that it doesn't last very long. So if you have a continuous backlog and it's not being drained or not being addressed, um, then it's kind of like defeats the purpose of ha um, having uh, this type of thing. Um, you also kind of want to, when you're thinking about dealing with a backlog, you, you might need to acknowledge fairness because um, at some point you, you have a uh, bunch of requests that you need to go through um, and at that point in time when you're dealing with that backlog, you might want to actually um, make sure that certain workloads are prioritized differently than other workloads. So um, imagine a, a line of people waiting for ice cream um, and in this case, I guess at some point you cut off that line to ice cream, but in the real world, you never really stop tra incoming traffic. So the idea is that you don't really want to keep this steady state having like a huge, a lot of people waiting. Because um, it, what it means is that any new incoming requests are also are going to always be waiting and you're not going to be able to get to them uh, in a shorter amount of time. So what do you do um, with these backlogs? Um, imagine the person, uh, being the one that's receiving these ice cream requests and trying to dole out ice cream. So some uh, aspects or some strategies that she might provide is to prioritize different workloads. So for example, if there was some ice cream that uh, expires a little bit early or is just not good anymore than other ice cream, maybe one thing to consider is to take in requests for those types of flavors separately from the other normal flavors. Um, or imagine that there's people in line and they want to request hot dogs or something that you just don't have, and um, it takes a long time to explain to those customers that you don't serve hot dogs and you only have ice cream. So in those cases, you might want to throw away those workloads, but maybe at a lower priority because you actually want to be prioritizing the customers that um, want to give you money and have legit requests. So that kind of goes to prioritizing workloads. You, there's two sort of strategies that you can deal with it, which is delaying them, delaying the ones that you want to be lower priority, or just discarding them, and you don't want to process them ever. Um, the other side of things is you can simply increase the processing power. So that's just increasing the egress rate with which you're processing these backlogs. And so you can do that with just being faster, um, so the person can just be doling out ice cream way faster or asking for help and having more people uh, doling the ice cream out in parallel. So uh, given that these are some of the strategies to deal with backlogs, I'm going to be talking about some of the controls uh, to the uh, paths to asynchronous that I talked in the previous slides. So let's first talk about um, SQS event sources, as this one kind of has some already natural concepts that allows you to prioritize workloads. Um, with SQS, you can uh, assign a DLQ um, by setting a policy of maximum receives. So that means that um, every time I pull a message off of an SQS, 
that message's receive count increases. And you can set a maximum number of receive counts before that message is discarded. Um, and if you set a DLQ, then that message gets delivered to that DLQ. Um, in this case, another SQS. So what this allows you to do is to ensure th that incoming requests um, get serviced at an appropriate rate. Um, and the requests that are having a little bit of trouble being processed, maybe there's some you know, error that you want to be processing later, you can sideline those requests. Um, and in this case, you can set another SQS event service to another Lambda that process it. But the idea here is that it's in complete isolation to your main queue, and it doesn't impact um, the main traffic flowing through it. So taking this kind of concept, um, we've added a bunch of new controls with stream event sources. Um, these can be set through the existing event source APIs. So this is, um, this is uh, great event source mapping, get event source mapping. Um, and using these APIs, you can set this concept of uh, destination config, um, as well as maximum record age in seconds, maximum retry attempts, and bisect on function error. So let's dive into what these controls do. Um, the destination config on failure is essentially like a DLQ. It allows you to choose upon unsuccessful invocations and failures, um, delivering that record to that specific destination. And today we support SQS and SNS. Um, what's important here is the, the two following features, maximum record age in seconds, which is essentially a TTL. So this is the amount of uh, how old a record is going to be that you consider useful before you discard it. And anything before we discard, if you set that on failure for the destination, we will honor before anything um, is discarded. Similar with maximum retry attempts, you can set uh, maximum retry between zero and two attempts before that record is then either sent to your on failure destination or discarded. Um, bisect on function error is less of a traffic control. Um, it's a way to, it, uh, to help you with dealing with that poison pill situation that we talked about earlier. Um, so just real quick, bisect allows you to, in parallel, process the batch that's been split. So if you continuously do that, you will eventually isolate the record that's giving you trouble, and you can deal with that record uh, or that specific record sp um, individually without impacting any other messages that could possibly be in that batch. So given that we have these controls now, um, what you can do is when you have a stream, you can set uh, max event age or max retry, and that's really specifying um, the priority or the value of the traffic to you in terms of how old or how many attempts that you've made for it. Um, and then you can set the on failure destination, which will then serve as uh, a sideline queue. Um, and the destination for on failure, um, or destinations, in general, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, uh, the options are SNS, SQS, Lambda, and EventBridge. In this case, you know, imagine it's an SQS queue, um, and it can hold your lower priority workloads, and you can set a um, SQS event source to Lambda and have that be processed in complete isolation from your, from your mainstream. Um, some, some examples of when you might want to do this, it's, all of this is in relative to time, so we're talking about you know, real-time processing and what real-time really means to you and your business case. 
Um, so really thinking about the controls here, which is max event age. So how old do you think um, a workload is valuable to you? Or how many retry attempts? Um, so when do you think that uh, you don't actually want to be stop or impacting your, your other traffic because this one is failing too much? Um, so uh, for example, you could have things like uh, Twitter stream where you want to be having some maybe real-time aggregation or real-time analytics. And you don't really care if there's records coming in or messages coming in that's you know a little bit later or five hours later. But you do want to have a record of those ones in your sideline queue because you have some aggregate report that you want to do later. So you have these two tiers of what kind of workloads are important to you and you want to process them at different rates. Um, so very similarly, in Async Invoke, we've announced a bunch of cool new features that um, do to uh, the similar things. Um, these ones are a complete new set of APIs. It's a new configuration concept um, called the Event Invoke Config. So this is a configuration specifically for your Async Invoke or your Event Invoke, um, and you can set destination config. Um, as well as maximum event age in seconds and maximum retry attempts. So diving into um, these features a little bit more, what they allow you to do um, is for destination config, again, you can set an on failure, and this is very much like a DLQ. So granted, we do have the, an existing DLQ feature for async invokes. Um, if you have both set, we will honor both. But the recommended um, uh, way path forward is to really use destination configs on failure, um, as that has a more cohesive, uh, more cohesive, cohesive place where you're setting all your future async invoke uh, configurations. Um, maximum event age in seconds uh, is a TTL, so time to live for your asynchronous invocations, um, which can be set between 60 seconds and six hours. And maximum retry attempts, um, you can set between zero and two attempts. When you don't set these things, the default is six hours for event age and two attempts for retry attempts. That's what we do today. We retry two times. Um, but what this allows you to do is you know, say, I only really want my, the freshest invokes, and I don't even want to attempt uh, retry any invokes. So setting that to zero is uh, what that allows you to do. So with these controls, you can have your asynchronous invocation um, and set the max eventage and max retry attempts as rules of how important you want your async invocations to be and differentiate between that. And then you can also set the on failure destination um, to be uh, SQS, SNS, um, Lambda, or EventBridge. In this case, again, I have uh, the good old SQS queue to be a sideline queue, and that can be processed in complete isolation from the rest of your asynchronous invokes um, uh, using another AWS Lambda function. So kind of talking about the whole networking parallel things again, um, we, you know, we talked about uh, prioritizing or diff the different priorities of workloads. So there's this concept called buffer bloat in the world of networking, which is the existence of uh, an excessively large or bloated buffer in the system that's just not being addressed um, and it's kind of being persistent. Um, and 
And what that impacts is um, the amount of good put. So good put is the amount of throughput that is like um, stripped of all the, the retries and the overhead um, that might be causing all this buffer bloat. So at any given point in time, you might, actually, you might have you know, a lot of throughput, but the amount of good put, the amount of actual maybe fresh incoming traffic that you, that's the part that's important to you, it can, can be quite low. And so that's something to be careful of. Um, and my analogy here is, you know, imagine you have a pile of vegetables, and at a certain point in time, um, you probably don't want to be consuming them anymore. They're just not uh, what, it's just not what you want, uh, because they're wrong. So we talked about um, the priority of different workloads, um, and uh, I had also mentioned just increasing egress rate. So this kind of, I call it just beefier processing, which is another way to address some backlogs. Um, for these different avenues uh, of asynchronous, uh, asynchronous processing, um, on the back end, on the Lambda side, what we do is we scale uh, in response to what kind of workload we're detecting. So for um, streams, like Kinesis streams or DynamoDB streams, it might be, uh, one indication could be the pure number of shards. If you have a large number of shards, you're likely going to have a larger workload. Um, for customer queues, it could be uh, one of the signals is how many messages we receive every time we call um, a batch of records. So um, when we see that there is larger workloads, uh, we increase the power of processing essentially. And what does that really mean? Um, it means that there's more parallel processing. So there's just more threads that's doing this work and asking for work and processing it. Um, one thing to note, though, is for streams, um, and this kind of goes back to this uh, um, in-ordered poison pill issue that I talked about earlier, you are limited per shard the amount of concurrent processing today. But there's a new feature announced called the parallelization factor that allows you to add additional parallel processing power uh, per shard for a stream. Um, and really the key here is the, you want in-order processing per partition key. And you could have multiple partition keys uh, in a single shard. So uh, say you set uh, the, the parallelization factor to be three for your stream. That means that each shard could actually have up to three concurrency instead of one. Um, and how that works is, say we call, we get a batch of records from that shard, and here I have workloads from uh, the green and pink and yellow, um, and the resulting invocations can be three invocations, each with the batch of records for that partition key, and that's actually done concurrently. So um, doing this can allow you to have greater beefier processing from your streams. And again, going back to some networking parallels, um, the concept of head-of-line blocking is uh, a performance-limiting um, phenomenon where you have a queue of work to be done, and it's all being held up by that first packet. And one of the ways to address that is this concept of um, virtual output queuing, which is essentially, instead of having just a single queue, you have multiple ones maintained for the different types of uh, workloads or different possible output locations. So we had talked about previously, you know, having different buffers that can keep the different prioritized workloads, or even the parallelization factor for streams that allows you to uh, do greater in parallel work. Um, and, and the analogy here is, you know, you have this person that's drawing out all these red bottle caps, but um, it would be a lot faster if at the same time you had people sorting out the blue and the green bottle caps. B. 
because um, they all have their own different requirements and they can be processed um, completely separately. Uh, and one thing to note um, for beefier processing, specifically for streams, um, and this, this is kind of just more controls in your processing than maybe um, controlling the traffic itself. But you can set a custom batch window. So you, um, this means waiting up to 300 seconds now to increase the size of one batch of records that goes to a Lambda invocation before, um, before it's invoked. So this was actually released a little bit earlier this year. Um, so in this case, you know, I get one batch of records, and I'm before sending it for invocation, I'm going to wait around and get another big batch of records before uh, I send it for invoke. Um, a good talk, actually, that kind of dives more into the stream side of things is SVS317, um, and that'll dive specifically into stream processing controls and talk a little bit more about um, the stream processing side of things. So, um, now I'm going to talk specifically about asynchronous invocations um, and a little bit about how we do things under the hood to address backlogs um, and some of the uh, stuff that comes along with it. So high level, we have this concept of a queue router. So that's something that takes in the incoming asynchronous invocation requests and routes them to our internal set of buffers and our internal set of queues. What ends up happening is that we actually route, we can route multiple types of workloads or multiple workloads to a single queue. And so this is also um, a common issue with networking is for complete isolation, you would want to have a different buffer for every different type of workload. But in reality, this is um, you know, highly unmaintainable and not practical in terms of costs uh, and efficiency. So um, what ends up happening is that you have these workloads sharing the same queue, and that can lead to some interference. Um, so in this case, you might have, um, I don't know how to work this. <laughs> you might have uh, the yellow workload and the green workload take a little bit more time to be processed because it's actually waiting for the pink guy, um, which is not really desirable. So how we address this is with shuffle sharding. So um, who in the room is actually familiar with the concept of shuffle sharding? Okay, cool. So um, there's, also, there's a lot of other talks that dives into the mathematics and probabilities of it. I'm going to be talking about how we've implemented it um, just in our specific use case. So in this case, when we want to route, when we have an incoming request and we want to route it to one of our queues, we consistently hash to a set of queues. So we say um, one of our shards, in this case it'll be two. So we do the consistent hashing and we get back two queues. But which queue do I actually put my request into? Um, in this case, we use this concept of best of n. So in this case, because there's two queues in our shard, I'm going to choose which of these two queues is best. Um, and you have to define what best means uh, with best of n. And in this case, best means the queue with the least amount of backlog. So I have the concept here of, um, say, this. Uh, white line, oh, you don't, can't say that, sorry. Say that white line uh, represents just, you know, anything on the right side is, it's, is the amount of traffic that I can actually keep up with, and anything to the left is some backlog that's going to induce um, a little bit more latency. So in the case that I have uh, a yellow workload, and that's consistently hashed also to, you know, two random queues, and one of them actually overlaps with customer pink. In this case, um, the best of n strategy sees that there is some backlog in uh, the, the, the second queue, and so I'm going to be routing the 
uh, request for the yellow workload into the other queue that's actually quite empty and it's going to be able to service the request well. So this is um, a quick example of how we do shuffle sharding, uh, but kind of taking a look of, over the overall uh, space of things, we have a lot of different queues, um, and depending on the size of the shard and how many customers, customers you have, the, the mathematical probability of one shard completely overlapping with another gets very, very minimal. And so that's the sort of key concept here. You're reducing the scope of impact that any backlog might possibly have in the system. Um, shuffle sharding is all about the, the scope of impact. Um, and in this case, it's, it's not a super rare thing to happen, um, unlike other systems. You know, you might be talking about fault tolerance for what you want, what you want to be like a particularly rare event. Um, in this case, any customers at any given time could have a backlog. Um, if you set your concurrency limit to be, say, 10, and then you hammer, you know, async invoke at 100 uh, TPS, you're going to be having a bad time. Um, so this might happen any sort of, at any given period and it might reduce the effectiveness of the shuffle sharding technique, which is why we also um, employ the concept of just sidelining backlogs. And this means that we are going to be detecting when a certain backlog is going to be pervasive and stick around for a while. Um, and we want to make sure that that is isolated so that it doesn't impact any other workloads. So instead of having this pink workload be um, consistently hashed to queues that might be shared with other workloads, we're going to be routing it to its own queue. And in this case, this is a purple queue, not a purple workload, uh, just to differentiate it from the blue queues. Um, so sidelining guarantees this isolation. Um, and I talked about, you know, we don't want to give every workload their own queue. This hybrid approach kind of leverages the probability of shuffle sharding um, in the world where you're going to have brief moments of backlogs while still relying on the determinist, determinism of isolating in certain cases. And, um, for, and the case is generally when we think that the backlog is going to be sustained or going to be particularly uh, risky. So looking at the overall architecture a little bit more, when we talk about queue router, um, really it's a set of hosts. It's a set of hosts that's taking in incoming requests um, and then routing it to our set of back, uh, backend queues. And then when we talk about queue pollers, it's a, a whole fleet of queue pollers. There's a lot of them. Um, and when they're processing the queues, they're processing from many queues at a time. Um, it's actually an end-to-end -end relationship. And how does this uh, relationship form? We have a set of control plane services, and I'll just kind of abstract it away um, as a queue manager. And so we have these services that are discovering work, uh, and then you have the queue managers all asking for work. So um, at any given time, the queue, the queue puller itself knows how much work that it can take on, and so it'll ask for work if it can take on more work. And the queue manager knows if there's available work to be done and then leases them to the queue puller. Um, doing it this way allows a, a bit of resiliency for um, when hosts are failing. So for example, if a queue puller dies um, and the queues that it was processing are no longer processed by that, uh, by that host, you see that it's still being processed by other hosts. Um, they're going to have to pick up a little bit of the slack, but 
um, the idea is that any given point in time, any queues or any um, you know, work has, has some threads that are watching it and monitoring it and making sure that it's being processed. And when we have a host that comes back online and asks for work, it might not necessarily get all the same uh, assignments or workloads. In this case, it has um, you know, two of the original three, and maybe that third one is processed by another host that you know, is asking for work because it has the capacity to take on a, more work. At the end of the day, um, uh, we also need the ability to um, scale for the heavier workloads. And I talked a, a bit about the whole um, beefier processing bit. So um, here we have still some remaining backlogs um, the pink workload has generated. And the queue pullers will react to that and increase the parallel processing to address those backlogs. Um, once those backlogs are done and it detects that, hey, everything's cool again, I'm not getting as many messages, it can also sort of uh, back down. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, the queue pullers are res responsible for sending these asynchronous incoming requests for synchronous processing. So that's what for the actual execution to happen. So diving into sort of more of the sending for um, execution side, we'll talk again about the controls that you have in how this delivery happens and how this final uh, execution is done. So. You can set uh, maximum retry attempts, and originally this was two. So if you set it for two, what happens is you send for invocation, and if, that hap if it fails, we're going to retry again. Um, and that's retry number one. If it fails, I'm going to retry it twice. And so this meets the up to two times retry limit. If that fails, then that's a failure um, situation we're going to be discarding. And again, whenever we do this discard, it's, it's, it's a failure for processing this invocation. And so it'll meet the criteria for on-failure destinations. If you set a DLQ or on-failure destination, um, that will be honored before any discard happens. Um, same with the maximum event age. In this case, when we get a request and we see that it has exceeded the uh, amount of time that it's useful to you, um, uh, we, we don't attempt to send for invocation at that point. Instead, we go straight to the on-failure destination or we discard it. So again, this is because we want to get to the actual um, messages in the, uh, the workload that is important. Setting the destination config is not um, only for on-failure. Um, uh, any invocation result can be sent to a destination, including on success. So um, when you make that invocation, and whatever response you get back, um, whether it's a 400 or a 200, um, the request payload and context, as well as the response payload and context, will be sent to that destination. Um, in this example, it's uh, an event bridge. Um, and so what this really allows you to do, besides um, having that sidelining ability and DLQ, is allow you to have that visibility into the on success uh, use cases. So destinations provide you that visibility that where async invoke used to be fire and forget, it can now become fire and be notified. Um, for example, when you make a call to get food, you, know, you're not, you don't have to constantly check, is it done or is it ready? Someone's going to be delivering the results of your request to you. Similarly with the destination on success, it lets you be notified in real time the results of your async um, uh, invocation and execution and allows you to, uh, um, at that point in time, in real time, uh, react to it and um, perhaps 
execute the next step in a pipeline of uh, steps. Um, we have a talk, actually, SVS 326, that dives specifically into Lambda destinations, um, how it works, uh, a demo, and some use cases. So this is a chalk talk, actually, and uh, I believe there is a repeat uh, tomorrow. Um, another great uh, thing to think about when um, you're talking about visibility of asynchronous invocations is dwell times. So dwell time here I'm defining as the time between when that event was generated um, and when it's actually executed. So an example here is an Amazon S3 record, um, and you can see that there is the event time. So given that on this record you know when this event was generated and when it was sent um, for execution, in your actual Lambda code, what you can do is um, calculate the time between now, so when the function is actually being executed, and how, when that record was created. And then you can send it to CloudWatch as a metric. So um, here I've set the dimension to be just on the function name, but you can choose whatever. Um, what this allows you to do is have some sort of history uh, over all your invocations of what the dwell dwell time is between them and allows you to know if there's uh, some issues going on in latency, perhaps you're generating a bit of backlog because your egress rate is a lot smaller than your ingress rate. Um, it, totally aware that this is extra work that you do have to do um, and having more implicit visibility for async invokes is uh, definitely something that my team and uh, we're talking about and, and uh, improving the experience for. Um, another option is using AWS X-Ray um, and that allows you to trace uh, one particular invocation. So for that one particular invocation, you can see um, what the results were, so in this case, um, and also how long it took. So in this case, the function is called DynamoDB, uh, execution function, and the dwell time um, is the time between when that record uh, was made and when it was actually sent for execution. Um, and in this case, it succeeded on the first attempt, but if instead the result was a 400 um, and you had set, you would, would see uh, subsequent attempts and it would look like attempt number two in another line and attempt number three. So this is a really great way to have sort of um, dive into one specific example and kind of have a sample of what's going on in your system. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like an overview of asynchronous invocations in general. I did want to talk um, about some of the other talks that dives into specific, some of the concepts that I had talked about. Um, so SVS 326, that's specifically around Lambda destinations. Um, some people on my team is doing that talk and going into um, doing a demo and talking about the specific controls for destinations um, as well as some example uh, use cases. SVS 317 is on stream processing and the new controls that we had released for stream processing in particular and talking about some use cases there. Um, API 304 is on SQS event sources. So another great thing that we had launched was uh, FIFOQ, so um, kind of dives into that one. And then uh, 405 and 407 talks about, in general, best practices and resiliency when you're building a distributed system. So a little bit more on queuing theory and shuffle sharding and the mathematics behind it. So again, uh, this will end a little bit early, but I will be um, here and to answer any of your questions. Um, if you want to learn more, there's a bunch of great resources. Um, and uh, don't forget to 
fill out the survey on the mobile app. Yeah, thanks for coming and joining.